Good morning. Welcome to Harvest Bible Church. If you are visiting, welcome to our church, to Christ Church. We have been in the study of uh, the Gospel of Luke for the past uh, year and a half or so. And in chapter 22, we're in the context of Jesus' last week on earth. In fact, the last night before he is uh, on this particular night we're looking at, he will be arrested and taken before uh, his judges on the following day where he will be crucified. Um, he has made his way to an upper room and uh, observing the Passover is what he's doing. It'll be his last Passover. And in fact, he will change the Passover feast into what we call the Lord's Supper. Uh, what was in the past a feast that commemorated Israel being let go of their slavery in Egypt. And it was commemorated with a, a lamb that was, ro- that was killed, roasted. Uh, they look back on this time where God delivered them miraculously. Uh, and in, in Jesus' day, it would have been 1,400 years prior. And yet Jesus replaced this feast by being the actual lamb. It was his blood in which this was inaugurated in, not a lamb. He was the lamb. And a feast that looks forward to the return of Christ, whereby we have been delivered from the slavery of our sins. Let me just say that again, in case you didn't hear me. You and I are born into the slavery of sin. We do what sin tells us to do. You know you do. You want to do this? You do this. We are a slave to it. Jesus, however, by living our life and doing what God the Father modeled, lived our life for us, and in so doing, delivered us from our slavery to sin. Thank you. I hadn't even gone 90 seconds and you've already phased out on me. That is the good news, Jesus Christ. That's why we believe in him, to be set free from our slavery of sin, to sin. And so Jesus has commemorated this this meal on the night before he dies. They've taken the cup, as Giles said, if you hear for the announcements, this particular meal will be, um, we'll, we'll learn how the Jews celebrated it, the Passover meal called the Seder on March the 5th from 6.30 to 8 o'clock here at the church. We hope you'll join us. But Jesus is having this meal. And we left off last week in verse 20 where he had taken the cup and he had said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And then right here in verse 21, in the midst of everything that seems to be so mysterious, good in some sense, but Jesus throws a a wrench into it here in verse 21. He says, but behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine at the table. The hand here is um, going to be a, a part for the whole, a synecdoche. You remember synecdoche? I didn't think you did. <laughs> it's that part for the whole. The hand is just that it, it's about the whole person, the hand of the person. The one betraying me is with us. By the way, go up to chapter 22, verse 3. Um, we know who that person is. We do. The disciples didn't know at the time. In 22.3, and says, and Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot. So Judas, the son of Iscariot. Satan, the devil himself, has entered into Judas. And Judas is at this meal. Previously, Jesus called Judas, without mentioning his name, a devil. In John chapter 6, verse 70. A devil. Jesus will refer to him in John chapter 17, verse 12, as the son of perdition or the the son of destruction. He's one of the 12. When Jesus sent these disciples out, previously in chapter 9 and chapter 10, he sent them out and gave them power over the dead. Gave them power to raise the dead, to heal uh, sickness, to, to make the blind see, the deaf hear, the mute talk. That's who... Judas Iscariot was. He was among those. He's he's representative of those who are among the Christians in a church, yet who are not of the church at all. Mere attendance at church doesn't make you part of the church. Belief and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ does every time. And so Jesus makes this clear in verse 21. The hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. As if to say, I'm going to die. I'm going to be betrayed. The Old Testament scriptures prophesied it. God the Father has known about it from all eternity. Before he created man. It was part of God's plan that his son redeem sinful mankind. This is not catching God by surprise. Judas Iscariot's actions. 
That's why he says, indeed, the Son of Man, and he speaks again as, as himself, as the Son of Man. This prophecy from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, and the Son of Man appears on the scene in Daniel's prophecy in 550 B.C. at the end of four successive world-dominating empires, where the Son of Man appears on the scene, and now he's the final king and kingdom. Daniel covers all of eternity. Covers all of, of history, I should say, from 650 B.C. on to the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, I'm that guy. I am that prophesied son of man. And although Daniel doesn't say it, Daniel only speaks of the son of man coming and inheriting an eternal, everlasting kingdom. Jesus says in verse 22, the son of man is going as it has been determined. That is, he's going to his death on the cross. No one saw that in the Old Testament. Certainly not in the Son of Man prophecies. And yet Jesus is saying, it's been determined. Don't ever think, and don't let anyone think, if you can correct them, that what happened to the Lord Jesus Christ on that cross was some accident or something he couldn't prevent. He went to the cross to be crucified. He went into Jerusalem to be arrested in order to be crucified. He knew what was happening. He is the Lamb of God. He had to die. He had already lived our life in three and a half years of ministry. Lived perfectly as you and I cannot. And now he will die our deaths. It was predetermined. If you want to write in your Bible there, put right after verse 22a is Acts 22, 23, where Peter stands up and says, it was the predetermined, predestined plan of God the Father that his son come and die. Nothing happens by happenstance in God's plan. And even though it's been prophesied, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Matthew 21, 29 adds, it's better that that man had not been born at all. It would have been better for this man, whom we know is Judas Iscariot, to have never been born. Not to have born and died young, but to have never been born. There is no worse person in the fires of hell than the one who knew Jesus was the Christ. Followed him, walked with him, saw everything he did heard everything he taught, knew he was the Messiah, and said, no, I'll take 30 pieces of silver for him. There is no worse person. And yet, people today who will join Judas Iscariot in the fires of hell, many attend church. that They know and believe that Jesus is who he said he was in the Bible. But they say, no, I don't want that. I might believe it's true, but I don't want it. The devil knows it's true. He didn't want it. And the thing about the devil here in, in, in 22.3 where he enters into Judas, you will find when you look at the devil, when you study the devil, and I don't make, I don't recommend you spend a whole lot of time studying the devil. I mean, I don't need to say anything more about that. But he's always around the most important people. He lurks and lingers around the most important people. Jesus is God incarnate, and there's the devil. He can't get to Jesus. He tried that in the 40 days of temptation. Couldn't get to Jesus. Found a way through Judas. Of course, the only people hanging around on the planet were two naked people back in Genesis 1 and 2, and he found them, but he was there. He knew where to go to get from Adam and Eve what he wanted he was there when Moses was there, the most important one on the planet. He was there when Israel was in the land, the most important nation on earth. Satan is always present and will always be present with the most important, most influential people on the planet. And right now, at this point, in this context, he's in Judas. And Jesus says it would be better if he was just never even born. Verse 23, and they began to discuss among themselves which one of them, them it might be who was going to do this thing. And they began in Matthew and Mark's gospel asking each other, is it I? Is it us? Did I do something? Here's the interesting thing. Is as wicked as Judas was, none of his buddies saw it. No one said, well, it's got to be him. If it was any of the 12, it would be him. In fact, when Judas shows up in the garden, the guys are astonished. They did not figure that it was him. Sometimes it's the kindest Seemingly kindest, nicest people, those who serve. Remember, we'll find out later. John will tell us that Judas carried the money bag. That meant, meant that they thought he was very trustworthy. John later figured out he was stealing from the money bag. Uh, he was the one that that night at the, at the Last Supper, 
that when he left, the disciples didn't for one second think that Jesus has just sent away his betrayer. They thought Judas, being the money bag carrier, was going out to give alms to the poor. No one figured it. That's scary. And yet, Satan is in him. Mm. Satan has a big smile, doesn't he? Has a great persona. Now, as if things couldn't get more distasteful, the disciples began to dispute among them. Probably when they're they're talking to each other going, is it me? Is it me? Well, it's not me. I'm better than you, John. And Matthew might have perked up going, well, I'm writing a gospel. I'm better than all of you. Look at the argument, verse 24. In the midst of Jesus' final night, there arose a, a dispute among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Well, I'm the greatest. No, no, I'm the greatest. Well, if I'm the greatest, then it can't be me betraying Jesus. It's got to be you. Now, these guys were flesh and blood. They're just like you and me. I mean, we've got to cut them some slack. And we know that Peter, James, and John were part of Jesus' inner circle. So perhaps the, the, the argument centered around which one of those three, or maybe the other disciples outside of that inner circle, were somehow concerned that Peter, James, or John would, would have some influence in Jesus' kingdom and oppress them in some way. They didn't trust each other, perhaps. But they're arguing in the midst of this. I could see Jesus sitting at the head of the table going, really, guys? Seriously? No, Jesus wouldn't have been sarcastic like that. Jesus knew it was there. They're arguing. Now, they had done this before. We read about it in chapter 9, verse 46. They're arguing, and Jesus puts a child in their midst and says, look, you want to be great? Be like this child. They blew that off. We want to be the greatest. And they believe Jesus is going to, he's already in Jerusalem. They believe he's going to set up his kingdom. The the fact that he's going to die and that that he's told them at least on three occasions he's going to die, be be arrested and crucified and raised on the third day, they, they didn't understand that. So that's out of their heads. Jesus is going to set up his kingdom. Which one of us is the greatest? I'm not going to deny him. You are. And Jesus said to them in verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is greatest among you must become the youngest and the leader like the servant. Now, he's already taught taught him this. How many times do you need to be taught something before you get it? It's embarrassing, isn't it? To to think how many times we, we had to read something before we actually got it or be told something. Didn't I tell you that? I mean, as a parent, don't you always say it to your kid? Didn't I tell you that? The joke's on you, parents. <laughs> Didn't I tell you that? Or you take your kid and you go, why did you do that? What a dumb question. They did it. Here's the answer. They're a wretched little sinner. <laughs> Just like you were before you came to know Christ. Don't ask a dumb question and get a dumb answer. I don't know. Because that's going to be their answer. I don't know. They don't know, and yet you can tell them, I'll tell you why he did it, because you're a wretched little sinner in need of a Savior like the rest of us. And the really scary thing is you don't have to teach kids that, to disobey. You have to teach them to obey. You have to teach them to say thank you. Um, Some adults never learned that as a child. You have to teach people to apologize. Some adults have never learned, have yet to learn that. To be sorry over your sins. To stop thinking of yourself as greater than everyone else. And Jesus is saying, look, the, the, the Roman emperors are out there calling themselves, they're lording their authority over everyone. The wealthy and powerful are using their influence over everyone. They're the benefactors. But it's not that to be that way with you. For the one that is greatest among you must become like the youngest, which is the lowest rung on the ladder. And the leader, like the servant. I want you to note that. I want you to note it about me as a pastor. I want you to note it about your elder and deacon board here at this church or any church where you go. An elder board is not a group of rulers. If they refer to themselves as such, leave. I have served with elders before who love the term elder. I loathe that term. I really do. I know it's in the Bible and all, but I loathe the term elder just because of the way it's used. You know, two guys knocking at my front door with white t-shirts. I'm elder so-and-so. Elder, you're 19 years old. I'm not calling you elder. That, the name means old man anyway, and it implies wisdom. I'm elder so-and-so. I'm, I'm Lance. I'm elder John. I'm elder, elder Jack over here. Okay, whatever. Or in churches, we're elders. We have elder meetings. We're above you. We are ruling elders. Some, some people separate ruling elders from teaching elders. Don't. 
ever allow that in your church. Jesus modeled to us servant leadership. An elder in a church, a deacon in a church, is to be a servant leader. It's to serve Christ's church. When the chips are down and, and decisions that need to be made, yeah, there's, there's ruling tendencies. But that's what Jesus is saying. The world is the one that lords their authority over you. Don't. You don't be like that. In fact, in the midst of this, John is the mo- has the longest section here in his gospel in John chapter 13 through 17 he covers 13 14 15 16 and 17 five chapters on what Matthew Mark and Luke cover in a half chapter it's called the upper room discourse prior to this remember I taught you it's the Olivet discourse that's Jesus speaking on the Mount of Olives about the end times this is the upper room discourse it's brief in the synoptics Matthew Mark and Luke it's lengthy in the gospel of John Chapters 13 through 17. And while Jesus is teaching this, John expands upon it in John 13, where Jesus is saying, a leader must be like a servant. What did Jesus do at this point? He disrobed, put a towel around him, took the form of a servant, and began to wash the disciples' feet. The lowest form of low. God Almighty in flesh begins to demonstrate that he's not too good to touch the filthy feet of another human being. And that was the lowest of low. Remember John the Baptist said, I'm not worthy to untie your sandals. No one would touch someone's sandals. That's filthy. You're walking around on dirt and filth all day. John the Baptist said, I'm not worthy to untie the the sandals of Jesus. He's alluding to how lowly this is. Of course, when Jesus gets to Peter in John chapter 13, Peter, brash as he was, no, you're not touching my feet. Same thing you and I might say, Jesus here. You are God Almighty. It'd be like the seat. wouldn't really be like it, but maybe imagine the CEO of your company if you work for a large corporation. Uh, it would be like a Donald Trump, you know, head of Trump Enterprises, stooping to such a level as to, to clean a dirty diaper, to clean your toilet bowl, or yes, to wash your feet. And you might say, oh, no, like Peter, you're not going to touch my feet. To which Peter comes, Jesus sits up and looks him probably right in the eye and says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. To which Peter goes, then bathe the whole body, Lord. Because the last thing I want is to not have a part with you. This is servant leadership. The greatest, guys, you're talking about who the greatest is. True greatness is service. And Jesus models it in John 13. Verse 27, for who is greater? The one who reclines at the table. Or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? Yeah, the one that reclines at the table is an invited guest, a guest of honor. That's a higher up than the one who's been brought in to clean the table, a waiter. That's what he says, am I not one among you who serves? The word for servant there at the end of verse 26 is the word is diakonos. It's where we get the word deacon. It's a waiter. It means a waiter. And yet Jesus is saying, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing for you to model leadership. The rest of the world says, no, look at me. Look at my degrees. Look at how great, big, strong, and good-looking I am. Look at all the money I possess and all the the things I've done in this world. That's greatness. You go into someone's house, and uh, some of them have an I love me house. You know, maybe they won the Heisman Trophy. Maybe they went to the Super Bowl. Maybe they wear their Super Bowl rings around, you know. Uh Uh-huh. What was that question? Showing off their gaudiness. The I love me. Look at me. These people never ask you questions. You know them because they don't care about you. They want you to know more about them. Not Jesus. Not God's true great people. They are those who serve, who listen. Nothing is too good for them. Nothing is too lowly, I should say, for them. It's people in our modern world who are willing to work in the nursery. Now, I know some of you don't want to work in the nursery. I understand. I don't either. I, I would, but I just have to be here. That's where I'd be if I wasn't here because I'm so lowly. This is not me trying to give you a guilt trip. I've had people even leave the church before saying, you're trying to guilt me into working in the nursery. I promise I'm not. I, I am trying to guilt anyone who thinks you're too good to work there. Now, if you're a gruffy, uh, ugly old man, I don't want you in the nursery anyway. No no young woman wants to hand off their, their baby doll to you. You, you, don't, you don't look the part, so no worries. <laughs> but if you do look like that and you love babies, we will put you with the right people. Just You're not too good to do that. 
And no one praises. There is, there's a pastor appreciation month around the churches, but there's no workers in the nursery appreciation. And yet those workers in the nursery allow us, let me just be quiet for a second. You hear that? You don't hear anything, do you? Now, that doesn't mean a baby's not going to cry out here and there. That's pretty good. Those people allow you and I to sit still and hear God's word. Praise God for those people. They're not too good to serve there. And that's just one example of the many within the church of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says at the end of verse 27, but I am among you as one who serves, not as the one sitting at the table waiting to be served, demonstrating greatness in a world then as now which defines it completely different. Jesus says in verse 28, you, the you is plural, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Note this, and you, speaking to the 12, you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That, I think that paragraph is often overlooked. Um, I'd like to say a few things about it, but Jesus is saying, I'm demonstrating leadership to you by serving you. You think you're all great. Let me bring you down a little bit lower. And then he tells them how, how great they are in the sense that you've stuck by me. There are lots of people who have left Jesus. In fact, the end of John chapter 6, a bunch of Jesus' disciples that are separated from the 12 at this point are following Jesus, and he gives them a really difficult sermon in John 6. And a good portion of them walk away, if not all of them. Jesus looks at the 12 and says, you want to leave too? And Peter says, well, where would we go, Lord? You have the words of life. But people leave Jesus. They abandon him, their disciples, their followers, and then they leave. Jesus is saying, not you, verse 28, you have stood by me in my trials. And they have. They've left their families. They've left their jobs to follow the Lord Jesus. They have seen uh, and protected him, or at least tried to. People trying to kill Jesus. People cursing Jesus. Yet they stood by him in his trials. Verse 29, and just as my father, note the past tense, has granted me a kingdom. God the Father, who has already granted God the Son his eternal kingdom, because he is the Son of Man, Jesus is saying, I grant you. So God the Father has delegated the kingdom on earth to his Son, and Jesus delegates that kingdom to the twelve. And what will they do? You will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Well, the 12 tribes of Israel are the 12 sons of Jacob. And although we don't know, no Jew knows which tribe they're from, God knows. He will bring those tribes together, separate them, all 12 of them. And each of the disciples, if you could name all 12 disciples, it's going to be minus Judas Iscariot, who will die, kill himself, who will be replaced by Matthias in Acts chapter 1, verse 26. Those 12 men will judge all the people of Israel on the planet. Now, who is it talking about? The 12 tribes of Israel, folks, when Jesus returns, you've got right before he returns is the seven-year tribulation, during which the seven-year tribulation is the final purging of Israel as a nation, where God's true people within the Israelite nationality will be known for who they are as believers. They will come to know their Messiah, Jesus, during that seven-year tribulation. And thus, all Israel will be saved. Now, these people are alive when Jesus returns. The rest of us were either raptured or we died in the tribulation time period. We've died. We've been with Jesus. We've been glorified. We come back with Jesus. We're not going to die again. But those who live during the tribulation and are still alive at the end of the tribulation when Jesus returns, they still have to die at some point. They're real people like you and I. And so, the 12 disciples, apostles who are already dead, will come back with Jesus, reign with Jesus, and reign over the people on the earth who are Israel. On that 1,000-year reign of Christ, the millennium, they will reign with Jesus. Elsewhere, the apostle Paul tells Gentiles, which is not Israel, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, that he tells them, you will reign over the nations. And in Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, in the millennium, that is the millennial reign of Christ in Genesis, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 20, we will reign with Christ. So in other words, the 12 disciples of Jesus, minus Judas plus Matthias, will reign over the nation of Israel with Jesus as the king. 
Gentiles, each one of us who are in Christ, will also have people that we reign over in that millennial kingdom. Here's the bad news. The bad news is is you're not going to be sitting on a cloud strumming a harp for eternity. That's actually very good news, isn't it? And the really good news is that God has has a perfectly wonderful and beautiful working plan for us in eternity of ruling, reigning, serving with Jesus over and with all of the redeemed. And everything you do today, how you live your lives now, how we live our lives now, has a great impact on how we will exist in eternity. Now, if you are power hungry and say, I'm going to serve Jesus more and more so I can reign over more people, that's not the point. You're missing it. You want to be the, the highest one reigning at the highest? Then serve the lowest. But if that's your goal, you're not going to get there anyway. If our motivation isn't simply to love Christ as he has loved us, your own sin nature is going to get you because your motivation is going to be wrong. And so while they're arguing about who the greatest and there's a traitor among them, Jesus tells them what it means to be great and then tells them what the future holds. And then he turns his attention to Peter. Peter's original name was Simon. He is the brother of Andrew. And they are fishermen alongside James and John who are brothers. And uh, in John chapter 1, um, Andrew is one of the first disciples. We believe Andrew and John are the first disciples of Jesus because they were John the Baptist's disciples. And John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And they went and followed him in John chapter 1. Andrew went and got his brother Simon. And he brings Simon to, to Jesus. And Jesus says, You shall be Petros. Peter, the rock. That's the rock there, not Dwayne Johnson. This is the rock. I'm guessing the modern rock has a better body than the old rock, but the, the old, I'm going with the old rock. And yet, it appears, I don't know if this is actually right. I don't know if this is what Jesus is doing, but when Simon Peter, when Peter is acting in accordance with his pre-Christian self, Jesus refers to him as Simon. I don't know if that's what's going on here. I don't know if he just went back and forth from Simon and Peter. I don't know. But he looks at Simon, Peter, in verse 31, and on two two times he, he repeats his name, Simon, Simon. Behold, and here's Satan again. Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Uh, the word for demanded is actually in the Greek text, it's a word that means to ask, except it has a little, uh, a little particle in front of it that means to demand. So we would translate it demand. He has come before God demanding to sift Peter and the apostles as wheat. You'll notice that that you has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. That you is plural. And so it's not just Peter that Satan has demanded to sift. It's all the disciples. Every you thereafter is the singular you where he's talking to Peter. But he says, Simon, behold. And that behold, if you have an NIV, the behold is is taken out. But the behold actually is there in the Greek text. And it adds some drama there. Behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. We need to unpack that just for a couple of seconds. A couple minutes actually. Is that Satan himself, who has entered into Judas Iscariot, at some point in the past has come before Jesus and said, I demand you give me Peter. Now, if Satan had any power of his own, he could have just taken Peter, but he doesn't. When you demand something from someone that you can't have, or something you can't have, you are asking them, but in this case, it's very disrespectful. I demand you give me Peter. Why would he want Peter? Peter's a top dog. You get Peter, perhaps Christianity doesn't go so well for Jesus, for us. He's demanded to, what does it mean to sift like wheat? I mean, is anyone really threatened by that? Sift me like wheat, I don't even know what that means. I'm not afraid of that. I mean, if it said, Satan has demanded to torture you for uh, a 24-hour period and, and laugh at you, well, that, that might mean something. But, but to sift like wheat, in the only the nearest one we have to go to in the Bible is from Amos chapter 9, verse 9, where God says, I will shake the heavens. I will shake the heavens. What does it mean to shake something? What's the one thing you're told not to do with your baby when you take your baby home? Just don't shake the baby. You don't have to feed the baby. You don't have to do any burp the baby. Just don't shake the baby. 
It would be devastating to the baby. To shake someone, we talk about it today in our own um, verbiage, we use, uh, it shook my faith. It shook me to the core. It's a metaphor for Satan saying, Jesus, give me permission to take Peter, to take your apostles and test them and show you what rotten men they are. Now, what does that remind you of elsewhere in the Bible? Remember in Job chapters 1 and 2? Satan. We don't even know in the book of Job if there are demons. In fact, I don't think demons come on the scene until much later. I don't think they even existed at this point in Job. They didn't come along until later. They weren't even birthed until later. But Satan is talking to God in Job chapter 1. And God says, where have you been? Where are you from? I've been roaming the earth and walking all over the earth. That's scary. This being that was once an angel, an archangel, who has defected from the heavens and is now roaming the earth and God's having a conversation with him. Oh yeah, what'd you find? Satan means the accuser. He didn't say much. And God says, well, what about my servant Job? To which Satan replies, well, you've given him everything. Everything he has, he has because you gave it to him. Why wouldn't he follow you? But if you took it away from him, he would curse you to your face. God says, okay, take it from him. You can't kill him, but take it from him. Note that. He has to ask permission. Let me just say real quick that if you're suffering the way you're suffering, if you're suffering in a way that you believe is not fair or otherworldly, if it's almost funny of the chain of events happening in your life, and you say it's Satan, you're probably right. But note this, behind that was permission from God to sift you. Oh yeah, you want to shake their faith? I give you permission to do so. Because with Job and with Peter, it's as if God was saying, you're not going to get them. They belong to me. They belong to me and you will not get them. But when we take a child of Satan, when we take an unbeliever and that unbeliever moves from darkness into the realm of light, Satan wants them back. And he will go to great lengths to make them miserable to make them kick their faith. And he has demanded permission to get Peter and the rest. But no, Jesus, this very emphatic I in the Greek text. But I have prayed for you. And that you is singular. I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith, Peter, may not fail. I love that. Because if God is allowing you, if you're a child of God, and God is allowing you to be shaken, sifted, then he's praying for you. And let me by extension add this, listen to me, is that if you are praying for another Christian in the name of Jesus for their strength in the midst of trials, you have the exact same power as Jesus. Why do I say that? Because you're praying for the exact same thing. When we pray in the name of Jesus, we are saying, Lord, your will be done. This is what you would want, Lord. This is what you would pray. Does God want his people to remain faithful? Across the board, yes. Pray for the faithfulness of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Here in our church, abroad, missionaries, people going through difficulties that we don't know. In the name of Jesus, Lord, keep your people faithful. Jesus says that I have prayed for you. That your faith may not fail. It's as if Jesus is saying, Peter, there's a great and amazingly horrible time of trial coming to you. But I've prayed for you. I don't know how much time I have to, to get to this, but I want you to turn, if you would, to John chapter 17. Here's the prayer that Jesus prayed. John, remember, as I told you, John's rendition of this is much longer. Jesus begins to pray for his disciples. John chapter 17. If you're in Luke, it's just one gospel over. John chapter 17. It's in the exact same context as we are in Luke 22. Jesus spoke these things, verse 1. Lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, 
that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. This would include you and I. Jesus prayed for you and I because we belong to him. Verse 10, and all things that are mine are yours and yours are mine and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name. There's his prayer. The name which you have given me that they may be one as we are. Right now they're arguing who's the greatest. But Jesus' prayer is that they would be one. He says in verse 12, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. That's Judas Iscariot. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made well, made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. There's Jesus' prayer again. He's asked... God the Father, keep Peter and my disciples from the evil one, from the devil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Note this in verse 17, sanctify them. That means make them holy in the truth. Your word is truth. How do you become holy? Read the word. This is the word of God. I love that my critics, and there are a few out there, call me a Bible idolater. Bring it. I worship the God who gave us this word. It is this word. These written words on white pages. Or perhaps on your iPad. Or iPhone. Or phone. Or printed piece of paper. God's word. This is what sanctifies us. It feeds us. I have to tell you, a woman that I have known probably since the fifth grade contacted me this past week. She and I were moderate friends in elementary, high school, blah, blah, blah. And, um, she was not a Christian. Um, she called me the other day, and she, she said, Lance, you're the only pastor I know. I thought I'd call you. She said, all I can tell you is that I'm hungry. I'm hungry. She told me what she believes, what she hungers for. And I said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled, Matthew 5, 6. Read the word of God, her hunger, and I'm praying for her that she would find that her hunger is not in anything the world has to offer, but that the satisfaction is only found in God's word. As Jesus prayed, sanctify them in your word. Your word is truth. You may not know her name, but if you think, she represents so many out there today who are hungry truly hungry, may they be filled with God's word, God's righteousness. I love Jesus' guarantee. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They might be fulfilled. They will be filled. When you hunger for God's righteousness, it's like this never-ending buffet. He just fills us. They shall be filled. But I have prayed for you, verse 32. What did he pray? That your faith may not fail. While Satan is shaking you, trying to shake your faith and trying to make you all look foolish. Then he says, and once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Turned again. That implies, Peter, you're going to fall away at some point. Maybe not fall away from the faith, but you're going to have to, you're going to do something that's going to cause you to turn back. And when you do turn back, once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. This is the prayer of Jesus, and this is exactly what happened. We know that Peter denied Jesus. We know that the, the disciples were, were all scattered when Jesus was crucified. We know that after the resurrection, they're hovering up in an upper room, scared out of their minds, a bunch of cowards. 
And yet Peter was standing up among them. We read in Acts chapter 1 that Peter was the leader, the designated leader. Why? Because Jesus prayed that he would be. Because Jesus poured his life into Peter. And he says, this is where Peter responds, to strengthen your brothers as if Peter's going, wait a minute, you're acting like I'm going to fall away, Lord. But in verse 33, he says, Lord, with you I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. In the other gospels, Matthew's gospel, he says, even if all fall away, not me. They may go, I won't. I'm your man. I got your back, Jesus. I used to love that saying. Now it scares me to death. People I love the most in my past always said that we got your back. Yeah, you got my back. You had eight knives in there. I don't need those people covering my back. But that's what Peter is saying, and no doubt he meant it. As you and I might say, if I was tempted the way these guys were, I wouldn't do what they did. Later on, they're going to fall asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane while Jesus wants them to pray with him. I probably would have fallen asleep then too. You ever fallen asleep praying at 1030 at night? You woke up the next morning and you went, ooh, Lord, I, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> not to say anything. <laughs> Maybe that's not such a bad thing. It's a good thing to fall asleep praying. I mean, Cheryl does it all the time talking to me. I'm that boring. That's just the way it is. I'd fall asleep. I think I might deny Jesus too. I, I think in my mind, in my bravado, no way, I will die for Jesus, just as Peter did. And yet, it only took a little girl asking him, hey, you were with the Galilean on three occasions. I am ready to go both to prison to death for you. And Jesus said, I say to you, Peter, calling Peter here, Simon up there, it's Peter here, the rooster will not crow today. That is, the sun will not rise until you have denied three times that you know me. How sobering would that be? Jesus told that, Lance, I appreciate your faithfulness. I know that you think that you would hold fast in such a trial. But you are going to be so afraid that you're going to tell people you don't even know me. Three times. Not once. Three times. And it was three occasions that we see in the Gospels. We'll get to them in Luke's Gospel later. He may have denied Jesus on multiple times on each of the three occasions, some have surmised. doesn't matter. On three occasions. And so Peter had this overconfidence in himself. Do you? Not me. You might say, I'm not overconfident. I'm not like that. You might be overconfident. I'm not like that. We are all something. The double-edged sword of sin is always lurking. Satan has demanded to sift all of us. The you is plural. Satan wants all of us. Because if he can make some of us trip up, all he, he's got more trophies on his wall. Look, I got them. I got him. I got that marriage. I got that kid. I got that husband. It took me 20 years, but I got that woman. I got him. They all said they were Christians. They all came to the church. They all told Lance, we want to be baptized when we're 15 years old. We are in. I got them when they were 18, their first semester of Texas A&M. I got them. Satan's demanded to shake our faith. What are you going to do? What are you doing to make sure that doesn't happen to you? What did Jesus say? Sanctify them in your word. Your word is truth. Folks, this word coming into our, through our eyes and our brain and our hearts is a protective layer. If we know what's happening out there in the realm beyond us, aren't we all that more equipped to know when it's happening and say, I don't sweat you, Satan. Do your worst. I got Job to look at. I got Jesus to look at. I got Peter to look at. He may have stumbled, but he got back up. At this point, probably very silent. You're going to deny me three times. They probably all looked at each other. Elsewhere, Jesus said, you'll all fall away. It's not just Peter. You're all going to fall away. And he quotes from Zechariah 13, 7, where it says, I will scatter, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And that's exactly what happened. Just a couple hours later in the garden. Verse 35, and he said to them, when I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, 
You did not lack anything, did you? This is a reference to John or to Luke chapter nine and uh, ten chapter chapter nine verse three, chapter ten verse four, where he sent the twelve out and said, "Go out and announce the kingdom of heaven is at hand." And then he sent the seventy out and said, "Go announce the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Don't take anything with you. I'll take care of you. Rely on the hospitality of others. You just go." And they did. And he said, "You didn't lack anything, did you?" They said, "No, nothing." Verse thirty-six. And he said to them, but now, here's the contrast, but now, that was then. By the way, those passages in Luke chapter 9 and Luke chapter 10 are not messages that are applicable for the modern missionary to go and say, I'm going to go off to India and preach the gospel. And Jesus, Jesus said, don't take anything, I'm just going. No. There's a change. Jesus gives it right here. But now, guys, things are going to change now. In my post-resurrection dispensation, life's going to be a little bit different. Back then, I was with you. Now it's going to change. He said to them, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise, also a bag. And whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. Sword. I think the sword is literal because I think money is literal and I think a bag is literal. Take some extra money. Take some extra clothes. And if you don't have a sword for some self-defense in the modern world, I'd say pack some heat. Lord, Lance, a 9 millimeter or 45? Yeah. Now, this is not Jesus saying, guys, go out and be, and be offensive and, you know, carry the sword out here and, and shine it. And every time somebody sees you that you're sharpening your knife. That's not it at all. It was just. <laughs> Start talking about guns in Texas and everybody comes to life. He's just talking about common sense, some self-defense. Guys, you're traveling evangelists. People are going to hate you as they hate me. A little self-defense won't hurt. I believe the sword is literal. Others think it's not, but it's listed right there along other literal things. I don't know why it wouldn't be. Sell your coat. Buy a sword if you want, if you need one. This would be a dagger. It wouldn't be a long, you know, fencing-type instrument, but a dagger of sorts. And he explains in verse 37, For I tell you, that which is written must be fulfilled in me. And then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, the, the suffering servant, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. So if a sinless man, Jesus, prophesied 700 years prior, would be numbered with the transgressors, they would, in other words, they're saying this sinless person is just like all the, the wicked, violent robbers out there. He's numbered with them. He's going to be crucified alongside them. Then guys, by golly, you're going to be numbered with them too. Be ready. Have some extra money. You might need bail from jail. Have some extra clothes. They might tear your clothes off. Have a sword in case you might need that. As I was numbered to the transgressors, and he says, for that which was refers to me has its fulfillment. That means Jesus certainly thought that Isaiah 53 was a fulfillment of himself. Of course, they, maybe like you, were fixated not on the extra money they got to take or the clothes, but Jesus said we get to take a sword. Look, Lord, here are two swords. To which the Son of God would go, really, guys? You think you're going to fight the Roman legions with a couple of little daggers? And so he says it is enough. You could translate that to say, yeah, two's enough. Two's enough to destroy the Roman legions that are coming to arrest me in a couple of hours. That ought to work. That's not what he means. It's enough. It's enough of this foolish talk. Here's two swords, Lord. Is that what you meant? These dull, dim-witted men who are arguing about who's the greatest in the midst of their Lord dying. Lord, can we take two swords? Is that enough to fight? To which Peter will pull the sword out, go for the head of the high priest's slave, end up cutting his ear. My guess is that the sword landed right there flush on his head and didn't take his head off, but cut off half the ear. Otherwise, how do you find an ear to cut off, you know? Swinging wildly, bam, got the ear. Jesus is saying, that's not what I'm talking about, guys. This brings us to the end of this section. I want you to note the activity of Satan. The way I broke down your outline was that there's a clash between light and darkness. What Satan does, his influence in the world, what Jesus said to counter that. Folks, that battle is still being waged. It's all over. It's all around. It might be in your life right now. Your thoughts... The battle that you're having, maybe with boredom, maybe with pornography, maybe with, with money, 
leisure is a battle that's being waged within our souls. The battle that says, God, you are being unfair to me. Don't you think Job could have said that? And yet God never apologized to Job after all he went through. Never explained to Job, here's what was happening. God is going to be God. In your life, our lives, and the life of the church, Jesus is right there in the midst of it in full, total control. Is he in full and total control of your life? Or has Satan entered into you, allowed you to do whatever it is you want to do? You must evaluate. At the end of the day, it's one or the other. Which is it? Whom do you serve? Who is the influence on your life? How you answer that question, what you do with it, will define you for eternity. Let's pray. Lord, because it will define for eternity, my prayer for all of us is faithfulness. If you prayed for faithfulness, I pray for faithfulness. You taught me to do that. You taught us to do that. Faithfulness in my life, as a pastor, as a friend, as a husband, as an elder in a church. Satan gets me, he sure makes a mockery of this church. Don't let him. Not for my sake, but for your sake. I pray for each of the people here. Each one of us in Christ, Lord, keep us faithful. Faithful in our marriages, when they get so difficult, we want to say, I'm done. Faithful with difficult children, we just want to leave. Faithful in a difficult job. Faithful with bad health. Or all of the above. God, may we see you in the midst of our trials, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the horrors. And may we find peace. And I pray, Lord, that we would pray for each other, for faithfulness. If Satan wants to have us, don't let him. May we be strong going forward, beginning with this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May God bless you and you're faithful to Christ. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas.